Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Today, I am joined by Todd Sega, the Senior Vice President of Development and Strategy at Pharmacy Quality Solutions, or PQS, a company specialized in performance management solutions for pharmacies so they can identify areas for operational enhancement and maximize eligibility for rebates and financial programs. Trained as a pharmacist, Todd is an expert in value-based pharmacy practice, performance, management, and crucially, pharmacy payer relations. We're super excited to have him on the show. Glad to be speaking with him again. And with that, Todd. Welcome to the show. Yeah, awesome to be here. Thanks for your time and the opportunity, Rory. Absolutely. I've enjoyed every time we've, we've had a chance to connect and we watch the work you're doing at PQS with fascination. With this conversation, what I was hoping to do is really dive into some of that work and into your ideas around value-based contracting in a pharmacy setting. Particularly, we'll then land the discussion where we often like to around how that's affecting the adoption of precision medicine. Before we do all that, let's just start with who you are, who the company is, and what you all are doing. So can you tell us a little bit about PQS? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So we are an organization that has been around for about seven years now called Pharmacy Quality Solutions. And what's sort of unique about our positioning is really how we came about. You have to go back in time a little bit to think about the drug benefits here in the US and how that was supported. And essentially we had the government for the first time with Medicare Part D paying for prescription drugs. And in their pursuit to launch that benefit realized that there really wasn't a way to measure the value or what the government would get for paying for prescription drugs. So they needed some form of medication related quality measures. So they had created a public private partnership in the form of an organization called the Pharmacy Quality Alliance, PQA. So they are a nonprofit still in the Washington DC area today. And that entity really formed a lot of collaborations and gathered a lot of stakeholders among physician communities, nursing communities, of course, the broader pharmacy community and also measure developers. And they work to create the measures that essentially our government was asking for. So while that came about, the drug benefit was launched, rolled out. And as that grew, as they worked with the physician community, they started to hear about the challenges that physicians were having with quality measures and the fact that they were being graded or scored on certain measures that sounded similar, but weren't quite sure if they were the same exact measures that the various health plans were actually using. So the group of, at PQA heard this feedback and heard those problems and had partnered with another organization to say, how do we get out ahead of the problems that the prescribers are having with the measures that they've been tracking and working with for a number of years? Should we create another group that can serve as a neutral third party working with both payers and pharmacies to be the go-to resource. So a pharmacy can know that a medication adherence measure was calculated the same way, whether it was payer A, payer B, or payer C. And then also it's a channel for those payers to see how the various pharmacies were performing for them. So it wasn't so disjointed. Performance information could be updated monthly as opposed to what the standard was at the time with prescribers, which was typically on an annual basis. 
So that was kind of the, the background of how PQA got started. And then in learning about the problems that prescribers had and trying to get out ahead of that in the marketplace, that's really about why we were formed. So that gives you a little background on our organization, but on a day-to-day -day basis, as I had already mentioned, our clients are health plans or payers, also including pharmacy benefit managers, but also pharmacies as well. So that includes the large chains, it includes the grocers, the independents, and a lot of those independents joined together through their wholesaler. So there are lots of groups of pharmacies, and we were fortunate to be able to partner at this point with about 95% of all community pharmacies. And with those two clients, we do still serve that role today as a neutral third party. So we take on a lot of that information on prescription claims, medical claims, member eligibility information from the payer side, whatever data is needed to calculate performance on various industry-endorsed performance measures. Most of those measures are created by the Pharmacy Quality Alliance that I already mentioned about. And we calculate performance scores down to e for each indiv individual patient, but pharmacies get to see, just as it was from day one, how they're performing on those measures, which patients they would need to target to improve those scores. And then that's what translates over to the payer side as well, where they get to monitor how pharmacies are also performing on those same measures. So that's really been our core product today, but it's been a really fun experience watching it grow. And at this point, we've partnered with a number of health plans and we have about 90% of all Medicare Part D lives. So there are some other things in the marketplace that enabled us to, I think, serve that role very well. But overall, it's been a, a fun experience. So I apologize for the lengthy response there, but I thought the historical context for our organization was appropriate because it really speaks to the core role that we still have today. No, I think that's tremendous. And just to hear that again, did you say 95% of community pharmacies? Is that in the U.S.? That's in the U.S. Yeah, wow. and we are expanding in Canada as well. So we, we do have a number of pharmacy clients in Canada with a payer that we're also working with and working on a broader rollout strategy in Canada. So we're really excited there. And certainly our, our metrics or frame of reference will be the broader North America to talk about how many partners we have, not just the U.S. But yeah, it's in the U.S., it's about 64,000 pharmacies is what that equates to. Wow, that's terrific. And what was the percentage of, of Part D beneficiaries you mentioned? Yeah, for Part D, we have about 90% of all of those lives. So that's in the, the mid-30s and about 35 or 36 million lives. But we do have other insurance lines of business, so commercial, uh, managed Medicaid, exchange. We do have those types of insurance lines as well. So all in, we have about 60 million lives that we host on the platform. And that, that's continuing to grow, especially as we add some others beyond Medicare. But on the Medicare side, we're definitely kind of topping out at that 90% range. Yeah. And I think that fact that you're a backbone for so much of this, we'll get into in a few minutes. Before that, though, I just want to, want to stay on this history topic. Before PQS, before the PQA, what was the status of relationships between community pharmacies and health plans? Was there a bridge there where, where they could do direct contracting? Was there an understanding of how to do that? Well, I think there was an understanding and, and the direct contracting really depends on the type of pharmacy you're referring to because it's mostly direct contracting for any of the larger groups that may have someone in a managed care role. But when it comes to independent pharmacies, they have always had that ability to do a direct contract, but it's a lot to manage. And they're trying to get in preferred networks, 
And sometimes it's better suited to align with what's called a pharmacy services administrative organization, a PSAO. And those groups are often associated with a wholesaler. So a McKesson, Cardinal, Amerisource, Bergen, but they don't have to be. There are plenty of other PSAOs that aren't associated with a wholesaler, but they represent a smaller share of the total independence. So most commonly we see independent pharmacies that are contracting with those PSAO groups because that's what gives them quite a bit of a scale. So if you think in the US, Walgreens and CVS being the, the two largest players, both of those combined are probably around the 18,000 to 19,000 range. So that's a pretty big chunk there. And we have following that Walmart, which might be in the, the upper 3000s to 4000s range. So there's a pretty big cliff after CVS and Walgreens. So these independents that essentially aggregate together one group, for example, with McKesson, they actually have about 4,500 or 5,000 pharmacies close to it. So right then and there, you can see how the power of some of the independents coming together for contracting purposes quickly get to the size in terms of a per pharmacy count that's close to some of the, the larger chains. So that's something that's been most common, but there's still that ability to contract directly for independent pharmacies that would like to work with a payer. But the, the bridge that you mentioned, that's perhaps what's changed the most. So if we go back 10 years before these quality measures were even into effect, which then spurred some of the value-based contracts that we'll probably get to, the common place for reimbursement or partnering with pharmacies is really for product only. And to a large part, that's still the focus today. So we have drug expenditures and health plans often contract with pharmacy benefit managers to help manage the pharmacy benefit. And with managing the pharmacy benefit usually comes contracting with pharmacies and it's how do we control costs and how do we maximize value? So it was really just how do we create preferred pharmacy networks where pharmacies would be potentially willing to give up some on reimbursement amounts for guaranteed foot traffic to be a preferred partner. And that foot traffic would come through reduced copays, et cetera, to incentivize the traffic to those pharmacies that have agreed to some of the lower reimbursement rates. So that was really the commonplace way, even really five years ago to 10 years ago. But then there have been new contracting elements that have come into play. And that's what's really started to add a second dimension to, hey, it's not just about controlling costs, because some of the payers quickly found that while they may have had the lowest rates, so it controlled their expenses the most, that doesn't necessarily mean that those were the highest performing or, or highest quality pharmacies. And that in turn really shot them in the foot a little bit because it resulted in getting lower performance scores on many of the medication related quality measures. So that's where we brought that to light. At least we'd like to think we did. So it, it added a little bit more to the story to say it's not just cost. Cost is still a big portion of it, but let's try to balance cost with quality and performance because we can't lose sight of those items. So that's what's been relatively new and the bridge that we see evolving to get to more of a service or value-based reimbursement comes from proving the value on quality measures, but quality measures that become a little bit more complex. Some that are process-related, some that get to an intermediate outcome, and then eventually getting to more outcomes, total cost of care in those items. And that's where you get some of the shared savings that then can come back to the pharmacy way, but we're a little ways away from that part of it. So that's kind of how we see the bridge and how that's evolved over the years. 
And you've talked to me about that before around when, when you started, you were quite early with the company, if I recall, you know, you were there around the start, but it started with some more simple measures. And over time, you've seen those grown in sophistication. Can you talk us through that and how that both your journey and then how that's progressed through the company's journey? Yeah, sure. And I think that's one reason why I've always been so passionate about our organization and the the role that we have in the marketplace. I wasn't here right at day one, but a little after the first year in, and it was a, a funny story, but I'll back up just a little before that. I've always been extremely passionate about the role of community pharmacy, but not only the role, but the potential. And certainly during training in the PharmD program, there's a lot of experiential training that you get where you get to directly apply what you've learned. And once I was out working in the community, which I enjoy the most just for that opportunity and ability to interact with so many people, there was little to that training that I saw that we could apply. So there was certainly some frustration that had mounted with me. And I quickly tried to think of how to turn that frustration into something that I would enjoy more than just sitting around trying to do the best I could in the environment that I wasn't necessarily excited about in the current state. So I had really mapped out a a path or explored which paths I could go down to learn more about how to change what I didn't like about the current marketplace for pharmacists in the community. And one of those was really needing to understand the payer perspective. They're the ultimate payer in the end. And of course, you can keep going upstream and say, well, then you have the government as the biggest payer. But then actually above that, you have employer groups. So all the commercialized insurance that we have in the employer groups, they're actually the largest payer. But there's still a health plan that's usually involved in making those decisions for what clinical programs look like, new innovative partnerships and things like that. And I always wanted pharmacy to have a more active role. So I had a a great opportunity with some that I had networked and interacted with while I was actually still in school, but even afterwards had kept in touch and had an opportunity to work for the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy in Washington, D.C. So I could start to learn more about the managed care pharmacist perspective. So what is the payer's mindset? What lens do they look at when they think about adding value and being innovative? And oftentimes that just wasn't thought of to look at pharmacy because from a health plan's view, a lot of that was contracted out to the PBM. So some of those efforts resulted there, but obviously guidance comes quite frequently from the health plan, even to the PBM. So to help understand that mindset, I had some time working in pharmacy affairs at AMCP, and that was a tremendous opportunity. I got to learn a little bit more about the language, thrown into all kinds of different projects. And that's also where I got to learn more about quality. And all during that time, I tried to think of what is it, how does a community pharmacy or pharmacist really plug in to work in a more integrated way with a payer. And sure, there were some things like medication therapy management, but it still just wasn't getting the traction that the broader profession would have liked to see between pharmacists and and health plans. And I, I came about this project to learn about the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, the STAR ratings program for Medicare. And I actually had to put a presentation together for a board member for a webinar, which I didn't know much about, but I was really thrown in the deep end and had to learn to swim pretty quickly. And I saw how easily it was to make the direct connection to here's something that a payer is accountable to. They need to improve performance. And there are certain measures 
that community pharmacists are squarely positioned to help make an impact on. So why is it that we don't try to leverage and partner with community pharmacies to help with that specific use case? So I started to see that. I was really passionate about it. And it was actually a job that was posted in AMCP's job board. And it was a colleague of mine that I was working with that had even said, hey, you're super passionate about community pharmacy and the opportunity there. And they're trying to expand the work with health plans. Look at this company called PQS. They're looking for somebody to work with health plans to set up value-based programs on CMS quality measures. So I actually thought it was a little too good to be true. I learned a little bit more about it, applied, and of course the rest is history. But that's a little bit of the background about how I had learned about that opportunity, saw quality measures as the common language that can be used and why I'm really passionate to this day about PQS's opportunity and role in the marketplace, because I think we're, we're very well positioned to help continue advancing and achieving kind of what I've been passionate about from day one, which is expanding that role of the pharmacist to do a little bit more than dispense, but also changing the medications, whether that's the medication itself or the dose, so that we have the prescribers or the physicians diagnosing, but we have some of the dose adjustments, treatment goals, et cetera, being supported by those that are trained to do that, which of course is pharmacists. So that's a little bit more about my personal journey and why I'm still so passionate about that to this day. I, I love it. It, uh, it resonates with themes we hear constantly, you know, so we hear from health systems and hospitals constantly to focus on quality measures and an ever improving, you know, what can we measure and how can we positively impact care through it? And we also regularly hear from people who are passionate about community pharmacy. Some of uh, our recent guests on this program have been community pharmacists who talk about the benefits of that close access to the community, the relationships they can build, the different place and the different trust level with patients they have. There's so much to be done there. And lastly, it is every single day we have conversations with pharmacists around practicing at the top of their license. The idea that you've strung these ideas together and applied them back to the pharmacy to say, how do we create a better system? I think it's, it's just terrific. So let's let's shift now into really the, the details of value-based medication management or value-based community pharmacy. You all put out a great report. I recommend it to any of our listeners who haven't seen it yet. It was 2019, I believe, and you can correct me there. 2019 PQS Industry Trend Report. And it was really around what is happening in this space. So can you walk us through a little bit of what that report was, what you're trying to achieve with it, and, and then we can we can actually talk through some of the measures you're using. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And we our first year was 2019, so that's correct, but we do actually have a 2020 trend report as well. So there is one that was towards the end of, of last year. So we, we try to have a, a report each year and, and that will evolve as we go forth. We wanted to at least test out if there was a difference in, in what we assessed year over year, should we allow for more time in between? So it's still a, a great capture of several different segments within the marketplace. And I'll share a little bit about the genesis of that. And that again, comes back to the need to have a common language. So as I mentioned, what our key role is in the marketplace as a neutral third party, we do work with a lot of different types of partners, but the most common being payers and community pharmacies. But in our journey over the last seven years, we've noticed that there's a very different language that even within the profession of pharmacy, that we have differences. So 
Those that may work in health systems have a different language. Those that work in a health plan have a very different language. Those that are in a pure research focused role. And then those in community pharmacy, the list goes on. There are so many different associations that we've spread ourselves a little thin. And in order to have a common language or going to a payer, if community pharmacies were going to go to a payer to have a conversation about a program or clinical services that they can provide, instead of going in there with what they think they can do, wouldn't it be more helpful if they also knew what challenges or problems those payers faced so that when they present a problem, it could be targeted to what they would like. And so that to us was creating a more common language, knowing what their language is before you go in to speak it. And that goes both ways. So that was some of the genesis behind it. So we had created a committee to help us come up with some of those questions. And we had representatives from the National Community Pharmacy Association, representing a lot of the independent pharmacy owners in the country. We had the broader American Pharmacists Association, the National Association for Chain Drug Stores, Last year, we had the National Association for Specialty Pharmacy, and then we ended up having the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy, and then also the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, PCMA, to represent the managed care and then the more specific PBM industries, respectively. So we tried to have these individuals participate to help us craft the right questions, and then we administered the survey to both the the payer community as well as the pharmacy community. So for payers in particular, we wanted to learn from them what challenges and opportunities have they had when it came to trying to improve performance on quality measures. And then for community pharmacies, we asked them, how ready are you for outcome-based reimbursement? What are the types of reimbursement programs you're most comfortable with? How much education do you think would be needed for individual pharmacists and teams to manage outcome-based reimbursement programs. So those are just some example questions that we jumped into, but we didn't want to lose out on the patient's perspective. I think we can often forget that. So that's actually the very first part within what we call section one of the trend report. So the first part, we had done some market research to understand consumer perceptions of pharmacists provided services. And in that section, we look at level of comfort with vaccine administration, different types of pharmacy settings, what they believe is the largest future role for the pharmacist three years, five years out. So there's some interesting trends that we look at and we stratify that by age and see if there are any trends there, most valuable current role. So we synthesize all three of those questions or questionnaires and surveys into the trend report so that as a reader goes through that, they can start to understand that language and what's been important, what are the challenges from both the patient's perspective, where they see the, the profession going, uh, where pharmacists are planning to invest and how they believe they can support the evolution of value-based programs. And then finally for the payers, so they can understand what pharmacies are investing in and, and also divulge where they've had good success and improvement but where there's still a lot of room for improvement and what they've been challenged with to move forward. So those are the three sections and all of that comes together in the trend report. So I know that was a lot, but that's kind of the genesis of the report and some of the key elements that are in each of those parts of section one. That's excellent. And we've actually all gone over it in some detail here and we think there's a lot of great insights. Is there anything jump out 
to you when you were doing this that you found surprising or, or that you thought was really encouraging for where the industry is going? Yeah, I think one thing that somewhat surprising, although not because we hear from it from our clients on a daily basis, is just how ready pharmacy is to move beyond even an adherence measure to get to an outcome-based measure. They're ready for it. They are investing in more and more capabilities to have point-of-care tests done at the pharmacy. Oftentimes, those aren't being reimbursed. And the payers actually identify several measure types and areas where they believe community pharmacies can influence. So it's almost as if we have payers clearly saying, we need some help. Here's where we think you can help us. And pharmacies are saying, here's what we're investing in and here's what we see as the future. So it's really risen to the top where there's some alignment between both of those groups. And we've always seen it, but it was almost as if we needed this trend report to help have those conversations between those two different types of organizations. And then lastly, I'd say something else that we had in the trend report was related to data-driven trends. So we took a look at our data set and oftentimes we, we just look at the measure itself and it's basic blocking and tackling. Well, how do you improve for this measure? What are we going to do? What's our action? But there are actually so many other items that are further upstream that you might be able to impact that have a downstream effect. And one of those examples that we had put together was looking at patient populations that qualify for some of those chronic conditions like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and patients with diabetes and the adherence that they have for those medications. But among those who are also taking some behavioral health medication, so whether it's an antidepressant or an antipsychotic, can we look and see if those who are adherent to their antidepressant just naturally have higher performance to their other medication classes? Because you're going further upstream and helping them with their mental health is that going to have a downstream kind of rising tide effect on other classes? And that's absolutely what we found. And it was a very substantial percentage of the population. So it, we're talking in the 20 to almost 30% as an aggregate adherent score that was higher among those who are adherent to their antidepressant versus those who weren't. So that's just a way to think a little bit more broadly instead of looking at just those trees, how do you zoom out a little bit, see the entire forest and see where approaches can be made to help out the entire patient and the entire story, not just how do we get them to be more adherent to their cholesterol medications. So that was interesting to us. And we have several other takeaways like that, but there are some things that unless you step back to take the time to look at it, it can easily be missed. Oh, it's terrific. I mean, that section of the report actually jumped off the page to me when you're talking around the idea of improving adherence to antidepressants and having that kind of leverage 20 to 30 percent as you put it improvements across diabetes rasa meds you know statins it was really quite impressive it, it leads me to a follow-on question though you know if this collaboration is happening between the community pharmacies and we're starting to see this kind of data how much focus are you seeing from payers on the management of depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions? And are they responding to that point of leverage with more focus on actually achieving positive outcomes there? I'd say somewhat, probably not as much as what, what you and I would like to say. And a lot of that comes down to other programs that they have in place. So if we also take a look at our trend report, we see very clearly that one of the biggest challenges that payers have is knowing which interventions 
led to the most improvement. So with so many interventions or quality improvement programs that payers have, they do try to limit that so they can do their best to tackle their biggest challenge, knowing what worked. So there's a lot of initiatives in the last couple of years that have been focused on social determinants of health and, and mental health that comes along with that. So there are a lot of disease state management, care management programs and initiatives that take place with the prescriber community that I think garner a lot of their focus. So it's not necessarily as focused on pharmacy right now, but because of those trends and the growth in the number of individuals, unfortunately, qualifying for Medicaid, there are behavioral health measures within that population that health plans are accountable to. So I think there's absolutely an understanding and recognition from the payer community that you really need to be focused and have solid behavioral health support and understanding food insecurities, financial toxicity. Those items all go into the, the top of that funnel or the top of the challenge list that I had mentioned. So it's definitely important. I wouldn't undermine that at all, but in terms of very specific programs with pharmacies, they're, they're not as advanced as what we would like to see, but I think we will see some traction again, unfortunately, as that managed Medicaid population ends up growing because that is a key measure of, of focus for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an unfortunate reason to see the, the growth, but I do think it's going to be needed, particularly with what we're seeing right now with COVID. Look, let's take that. You, you've hit on a couple of points here. And I think it nicely fits us into talking around precision medicine. So you talked about the increase of point of care testing, uh, you know, this this potential for treating mental health. When we think about those topics coming together, we're thinking quite a lot around pharmacogenetic testing, what we can do with it. How have you seen this marketplace respond and adopt precision medicine? Are you seeing much of it today? I think we're seeing a little bit more and, and we don't necessarily host that specific of a measure, but I think if we zoom out to what I was mentioning before, there is a huge opportunity to understand if somebody's lack of adherence or persistence to a particular therapy is due to intolerances and is that because of their genetic profile. When it comes to precision medicine and having some pharmacogenetic testing done, there's an incredible opportunity there because it's almost that first step to take to ensure that you have a better endpoint or outcome. And one example I can think of, we do host and have hosted an antiretroviral adherence, generally focused on patients with HIV. And there are many medications there that I know it's very important to have a pharmacogenetic test completed because there can be some negative effects in that particular population based on how they metabolize the medication. And adherence is defined as having 90% or more of their days covered for that particular category. So it's really important for people to be adherent. And it's also good to develop an attitude and culture of taking the medication appropriately and understanding why. And a lot of those medications, if not oral, um, some of the liquid medications that are taken orally, I know don't have a, a good taste of them as well. And sometimes it's pretty burdensome for how many different medications or antiretrovirals they may be on. So it's really important to get the dose right so that they have the best response possible and get to the treatment outcome that they're looking for. So that's certainly one example, but definitely in the opioid space as well. So we have some other measures that we host looking at opioids at high doses and also from multiple providers, concurrent use of opioids and benzodiazepines is a very common measure as well. 
And I know precision medicine holds a lot of opportunity to ensure dosing is correct in those patients who are receiving opioids for, for various conditions. So I, I think we're seeing that grow, especially with the point of care tests that have really become a new opportunity for pharmacy. Now that we are in the pandemic and so many of those tests are being completed at pharmacies, I think it's opened the door to have that discussion between payers and pharmacies to talk about reimbursement for more point of care screening or biometric tests to be completed. And I absolutely see where precision medicine and the pharmacogenic testing can easily be one of those. It's great to hear. I mean, our focus here is obviously on precision medication management, the idea of taking pharmacogenetics, taking all the other patient-specific variables such as liver, kidney function, and piling these things together to try and allow for evidence-based medication decisions to be easily used. And pharmacists are clearly well-positioned in, in the community to make an impact here because of their pharmacological expertise, their trusted role, and just that place in the community. So one thing this leads me to is we obviously think it's going to be increasing in adoption. From your perspective, is there a particular kind of quality measure that you think we need to see for this to start happening in mental health and cardiovascular where people are adopting pharmacogenetics or precision medicine in community pharmacy settings? Well, I think where the evidence is so strong on the pharmacogenetic testing, perhaps being performed prior to therapy initiation, there's an opportunity for a quality measure there. So maybe not largely what percent of all patients have had a pharmacogenetic test prior to new therapy start, but among the therapies that, that have the evidence that I mentioned, I think there's an opportunity for a measure there where we say among these high risk or high target patients, what percent have had a pharmacogenetic test completed as sort of a, a proxy or a process measure that can be done because the, the cost of not doing the test in that population, it could be seen as a harm. So I know if we look at patients with diabetes, an A1C test is not a very expensive test at all. I mean, it's a good marker over the last three months or so what the average blood sugar levels have been. So in my mind, I almost see the pharmacogenetic testing being similar to that, where why wouldn't you get the A1C test to understand where their baseline is at before you target the dose? And, and that is what happens today. But for those medications that pharmacogenetic testing has is proven to be so valuable for, what percent of those patients have had the test prior to therapy initiation? I think that's a good preliminary step to take. And there's a good measure there that can be tracked across various populations at the payer side, as well as the pharmacies. So that's one example that comes to mind as a type of quality measure. When we think about this, we obviously think there's, there's tremendous potential in a handful of condition areas, but those that are primary care centric and that you're seeing a lot in the community are certainly one area of focus. Look, we've been talking here for a while and I have at least a thousand more questions for you, Todd. It's always enjoyable talking to you and hearing this side of the thinking on the industry, but before we part ways, COVID-19 is still going strong, unfortunately, and, and having lots of impacts across the market. Love to get your view on how this is going to be impacting community pharmacies going forward. And, and ideally, through all of this tough stuff we're seeing, are there any positive signs you see, transformational signs that result from COVID-19 that you think of in terms of what we might see to come? Yeah, definitely. I think it's not something that anybody wanted, but there's an opportunity that's being presented to community pharmacy. Many of those people are acting upon, but there still is more opportunity out there. 
And if we think about just the vaccination rollout and the opportunity there, we already knew that pharmacies were best positioned as a healthcare provider that has easy access for patients. So they're already the most utilized and available type of provider. And that's having a spotlight on it for COVID-19 and thinking about the vaccine rollout. So what will pharmacy do with that? One of them is point of care tests. There's an increased opportunity there with the various tests, but that's a touch point with a patient. So what else? It, it opens the door for a conversation to say, if we're already speaking to them about their vaccine, that's a touch point that can be turned into value for the patient, of course, but also value back to the health plan in the pharmacy, where now they can be talking about, well, could we also take your blood pressure? There's a, a key opportunity to collect some of that key data so that the pharmacy is positioned kind of as the, the pharmacy patient-centered medical home. And that can be the, the core as they work with other healthcare providers. So the pharmacy and pharmacists are really being positioned back to be the center of care. And that's a tremendous opportunity for pharmacy because they can then refer out to other prescribers. Does that open up more collaborative practice agreements with community pharmacies? Because the system as a whole, this is probably the second biggest takeaway, is that so many individuals were delaying care in 2020 that if pushed to 2021, which it looks like it will be, it's going to completely overwhelm the system, especially here in the US. And even just the number of cancer diagnoses and the new therapy starts is down significantly. So if that water in the balloon shifts to 2021, we have an overburdened primary care system and we have a resource of community pharmacists across the country who are ready and able to do more than what they typically have done in the past in terms of their training and expertise. And so that also is kind of the second front that really opens up a huge opportunity for community pharmacy because they have an opportunity to strike for more services because that system's overburdened and they're put in the spotlight for just how accessible they are and the ability to have personalized relationships with patients. So it'll be a really fun year to watch how some of that plays out, but that's where we see some opportunity in the marketplace, creating some disruption at least. Well, we, are, we heard it here, a lot of opportunity for transformation in the pharmacy space this year, a lot of challenges overcome. And I think you and I agree, Todd, a lot of upside in terms of innovation and enhancing the quality of care through pharmacists. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about the work you're doing with PQS and where you see the industry going? Yeah, sure. Our, our website certainly is a key place where we post a lot of that. And then that obviously would link out to some of our social media accounts. But we do have, of course, Twitter and LinkedIn where we post a lot of our content. And we actually just posted some content looking at utilization in the U.S. on claims at pharmacies with a drive-through versus pharmacies that don't have a drive-through. So I'll leave that as the teaser to see if individuals would like to go take a look to see as a result of the pandemic and the shift was did utilization shift to pharmacies that had a drive-through versus those who didn't, sort of interesting to look at. But our website is pharmacyquality.com. So you can find a lot of information there, but definitely appreciate your time. It was a great discussion. Yeah, I enjoyed it greatly. Have a great day.